Well, I'll admit I was in a bit of a straight betwixt two, as Paul would put it yesterday. Obviously, the uh, news of the missionary not being here came a little late in the week, so I had to kind of adjust a little bit. And on one hand, I wanted to press forward in the book of James, but I didn't feel like I had adequate time. Um, I want to. Is anybody here think that the part of your body that gives you the most trouble is this? Right? And well, maybe your mind more, but this is just a pressure relief valve for this. And so, of course, the next section of James is faith controls the tongue. And I really, I was looking over that going, boy, I don't want to rush this. I want some more time. And so we're going to go through kind of a topical message this morning. It's not a Christmas message, although this passage, it's sometimes sad when passages get relegated to a certain type or time of the year. Obviously, the Word of God is profitable all the time. But for this morning, this is going to be kind of our a starting point of a topical message that uh, these principles have been a tremendous encouragement to me for years to go back and think about this. And I felt like I needed a reminder. And maybe we all do. What happens in our distresses? We get in the storm, the dark. And what do we wonder? Where is God? Or looking at what's happening nationally. Have you ever pay attention to what's happening and you're wringing your hands going, Lord, why don't you do something? Well, He is doing something all the time, uh, but sometimes we need a reminder of exactly where He is and what He's doing. So we're going to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the most glorious of all topics, uh, beginning here in uh, Matthew. Now that passage that was just read in your hearing, Maybe you notice there's two names for the Lord that are given in that passage. One of them is Jesus, which, of course, is a distinctly New Testament revelation. None of the Old Testament prophets predicted that particular name. And so this is the first time chronologically we see it given. And uh, they are told, thou shalt call his name Jesus. This is what you will name this child. And the other name given there in the last verse that we read is the name Emmanuel, which was the subject of specific Old Testament prophecy. In fact, he's quoting there in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So Jesus and Emmanuel, Old Testament revelation and fulfillment, or New Testament revelation and fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And I want to begin by pointing out that both of those, if you stop and think about it, have a past, present, and future Meaning, did God save in the past? That's what Jesus means, Jehovah saves. <laughs> was there a point in time where He accomplished redemption and was slaughtered on that cross that we call Calvary or Golgotha, a less attractive name? Well, yes, He did. Is He still saving men today? Yes, He is. Will He still be saving men tomorrow? Yes, He will. The only set of scars in eternity on human flesh are going to be on the hands, the feet, and the side of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is ever the Savior of humanity. That will never go away. And then that name, God with us. Well, God has stepped down in history. There's no question about that. There was a time when Jesus actually walked among men, when God stepped down and... Uh, Nothing was subtracted from him, but human flesh was added to him. And he took upon him our form. 
He will be God with us in the future when He wipes away all tears from our eyes and we dwell with Him forever. But what about now? If you're a Christian, is God with us? Is that a name that just applies to certain times and seasons? Is that a name that just applies when you sense it or feel it or when you think you're victorious or you think you're doing something for God? Does He depart at the other seasons? If you believe what that name means, Emmanuel, it's really sort of a, like really all of God's names, it's a doctrinal statement. Huge theology spoken in a name. Say, I believe that God is Emmanuel, that Jesus specifically is. What are you saying? You believe that God is omnipresent. He can't be God with us if He's not everywhere at once. What about when He's with somebody in Japan? I guess you're left out. No, He's everywhere. You're saying that you believe that Jesus is God. You're saying that you believe that He is knowable and personable even to you. That you believe that there's a mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, a go-between. And I think we can say that we, we believe we know Him through His Word, through the new birth. And that this church and other sound churches can stand as lighthouses in a very dark society. Do you ever wonder what those in the Scriptures actually knew about what was being told them? Like, what did, what did Mary and Joseph comprehend when they were told that this one would be called Emmanuel? As I understand it, when it says, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, they shall call His name Emmanuel, meaning specifically the Jewish people. All the world, but the Jews. Now, has that been completely fulfilled? No, not yet. Jews today still call Him this man. They're largely in unbelief. But oh, the day's coming. When the entire nation that's left alive will see Him for who He is. What about ourselves? I wonder when the last time was that you actually meditated on that particular title of Christ. God with us. I don't think it's a violation of the meaning to make it more personal than that. God with me. God with me. Is it only in the past and only something to be looked forward to in the future? Where is Christ now? Where is He? So we're going to look at seven places in relation to our everyday life where you can always find Him. Turn with me to Hebrews 1. We mentioned this in Sunday school that we would be here, so we didn't read it. Hebrews 1. Of course, in Sunday school, we've been talking about effective Bible study. We're actually building towards that. We're talking about a proper bibliology. What is the Scriptures? How did God reveal Himself? There's so much said in these first verses of Hebrews. Of course, verse 1, God has given His revelation in many different ways. But verse 2, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son." Jesus Christ is... The, the chief revelation of God. Of course, you don't see Him except through the Scriptures. But Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. We've got to stop this bifurcation in our brain, sometimes I think deliberately, where we see God the Father and Jesus as somehow different. 
as though Jesus might be compassionate on me, but God the Father will not. No, he that has seen him has seen the Father. What's God like? He's like Jesus. They're one and the same essence. So verse 2, God has appointed Him heir of all things, by whom He made the world. Now look at verse 3, speaking of Christ. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, the exact representation of God. Now look at this. And upholding all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand, the majesty on high. And where can you find Christ? Now, theologically speaking, He is not on the throne of David yet. That is in the future. Sometimes it's said that way. He's, the throne of David is a literal throne on earth in Jerusalem. He's not taken that throne yet. But He is above us reigning according to passages like that. You notice what it says there? Upholding. That means to carry, to keep from falling. Upholding how much? All things by the word of His power. Think of the dust in this room right now. You can't see it. We could open the blinds and let the sun in. But do you know not one speck of that dust is falling to the ground right now without His enabling and permission? Do you know that there's not a fist that's raised and not a heart that beats and not a tongue that wags and not a providential circumstance like a vehicle rollover in Chicago that happens without the enabling and the permission and the sustaining hand of the Lord Jesus Christ right this very minute. It's wrong to think that there's a subservient Christ sitting mute and powerless in the heavens merely till some time in the future. And right now I tell you there is an exalted man, capital N-M-A-N, deity with humanity robed over him, who's bearing rule as the member of the triune Godhead over every single minute detail in all the expanse of the universe. And the fact that he's seated there shows two very important things. One is that His sacrificial work is finished. It's finished. You look at the Old Testament articles of the priests, a table of showbread and the altar of incense and the candelabra. and One conspicuous thing was missing. A chair. Oh, there was the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled and where God Himself would often dwell even in a physical presence depending on the spiritual condition of the nation. But for the priest himself, there was no lazy boy recliner in the temple area. Do you know why? Because his work was never done. There were always more sacrifices. The false religions today, the ones that use priestcraft... Some man standing between you and God. It's the same thing. They're standing. We have a high priest who's seated this morning because he has already obtained eternal redemption for us. And secondly, him being seated shows that he's patiently, not passively, waiting things which most certainly will come to pass. Now, I'll admit it is a great mystery to me 
How it can be pictured that way when God is timeless. We have to understand God doesn't wait like you and I do. He doesn't have to have the succession of events that we call time. He's in every time zone right now. But as it relates to us so that we can understand it, He's patiently awaiting things which most certainly will come to pass. In fact, if you drop down to verse 13, it's asking, in fact, what chapter 1 is doing is showing Christ as superior to the angels. But to which of the angels said He, God the Father at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? That's a quote from Psalm 110. Are you flustered by the power of evil this morning? It's bothersome. It might help you to chew on Psalm 2 sometime when you see what's going on around us and all the insanity. Now the final fulfillment of that is when Christ comes back to rule, the final rebellion against Him. However, you see bits and pieces of it today. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth and the rulers, here they are gathering themselves, and they're saying, let us cast his bands asunder, cut his bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. The word there is amazing. It's talking about the Trinity. Mankind says, let's get God off our back. Let's establish a world system where we are in charge. And that's what you see happening today all over the place. Really, it's just Babylon repeated. Man's been doing that for thousands of years. <laughs> What's God's response? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Friends, the best rebellion mankind can come up with and the strongest coup that he can throw together to drag God off of his throne is not even a sick joke compared to him. The wicked just now are being prepared if they don't repent to be one large doormat for the returning king when his enemies become his footstool. Now, while reigning in the heavens, he's also making intercession for you and I. Hebrews 7 will not turn there, but it says, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. In fact, it says there that he's able to save to the uttermost because he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Have you ever failed to pray for somebody? Boy, I have. But there's one in the heavens whose continual joy and desire is to bring you individually before the throne of grace. One who's uniquely qualified as a mediator because he is both God and man. One who's never out of fellowship with his Father. One who never grows weary or forgetful or prays amiss. So don't ever think nobody is praying for you. And by the way, if it says that Christ liveth to make intercession, his prayer obsolete. <laughs> no. Now I'll admit I can't understand how God praying for me <laughs> works. But the scriptures say it. And he's preparing for us a place. Again in John 14. He tells him, if I go away, I'm going to come again. I go to prepare a place for you. He tells him, I'm going to come back again and receive you unto myself. 
Now, is that for the apostles only? Not according to verse 3. The apostles were promoted to glory through death, not by removal from the earth via rapture. In fact, what verse 3 is in John 14 is the only reference to the rapture in the Gospels. It's the first place in the Bible where God promises to take people off the earth beyond this life. Not only is He preparing it, but He wants you and I to expect it. Think about that. Think of our trade-ins. A corrupt body for an immortal one. Weak faith for perfect sight. Earthly labor for heavenly reward. Trials and tears for peace and bliss. Whatever home we have here for one that's custom designed by the Son of God Himself in which the title deed has already been signed in His own blood. Where else can you find the Lord Jesus Christ today? Secondly, you can find Him beneath us, sustaining. There's many names given, of course, for God the Father in the Bible, and one of the most common is that of a rock. You can trace that through the Old Testament. But it's not just use of God the Father, but specifically of Christ. Uh, we understand the metaphor, especially a large rock. It's imposing, it's immovable, unchangeable, at least according to our vantage points. They've been used historically as landmarks, foundations, reminders to future generations. Recently, we were walking through one of the oldest cemeteries in Helena, just appreciating history and thinking about eternity, my wife and I. And some of those gravestones were pretty worn, but some of those granite ones, unbelievable. They look like they were from last month. Only they've been there since 1870-whatever. It's incredible. Now, what does Christ as a rock show? Well, Daniel 2, he's the stone cut out without hands that fills the whole earth. It shows his complete dominion over all things. Christ as a rock is a hindrance to religious pride and self-righteousness. When he said, I'm the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense... He trips up the religious, arrogant person. It speaks of judgment. Daniel 2 again, that stone cut out without hands bashes all the kingdoms of the world to powder and they all blow away. The Lord Jesus said on this earth while He walked it, whoever falls on this stone shall be broken. But on whosoever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. Judgment. It also shows that he's a foundation stone or a, or a sustainer. The head of the corner in Matthew 16, he tells Peter, upon this rock, not talking about Peter, thou art Peter, Petros, a little stone, and upon this rock, Petra, bedrock, speaking of himself, I will build my church. Now, why doesn't hell prevail against the church? Because it's embedded on a rock. And that's true on an individual level. Again, in Ephesians 2, we see the church pictured there as a building. And Christ is the chief cornerstone. And on top of that is a foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And on top of that, cornerstone, foundation, are lively or living stones, as Peter called us. That's you and I as individual Christians being laid upon that 
foundation. Think of Psalm 37, 23. It says there, the steps of a good man. <laughs> Somebody says, I'm not a good man. Well, join the club by nature. He's not talking about perfectionism. Somebody who's been saved by the blood of Christ, somebody who has an honest desire to walk with Him, oh, there's struggles. But the promise there, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delighteth in His way, though He fall. He shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholdeth him with His hand. Do you know, for a real Christian, there's no such thing as hitting some cold, impersonal rock bottom. You fall, you fall onto the rock of ages, and you can never fall below His hand, because He's beneath us sustaining. Where else can we find Him? Well, we can find Him ahead of us, leading. Well, most of us are familiar with John 10, the Good Shepherd passage where the Lord talks about bringing His sheep and His sheep following Him. So a good shepherd in those days didn't drive His sheep from behind, but tenderly and watchfully led them from in front. Psalm 23, what a passage. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. It's been a while since I've mentioned it, so I'll mention it again. If you ever get a chance to read the book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller, it'll be worth your while. It's a fantastic exposition of Psalm 23 written by a shepherd. But one of the statements he makes, he says, Jesus is the most unique shepherd in history because he actually took upon himself the form of his sheep. If I pose the question to you, who is the great forerunner in the New Testament? What would you say? I think the temptation, knee-jerk reaction would be John the Baptist. That's actually not correct. Yes, John was a forerunner. He went ahead, but he's actually never called a forerunner in the Scriptures. That word is used once in the New Testament, and it speaks of... Christ. Hebrews 6, 19-20, I'll read it to you. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So John was forerunner in a limited sense, announcing the Messiah. It's correct to call him a forerunner, but Jesus is the forerunner in the fullest sense in that He entirely prepares the way for you and I to follow. Do you know Jesus never sends you somewhere He has not been? He's gone before in obedience and sacrifice, in trials and temptations, in rejection, in suffering, in death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. He's gone before you. And even now as good shepherd, He's ahead of you like the fire and cloudy pillar in Exodus, preparing your pathway. He's leading you to water in the thirsty deserts of life, and we all know those come. He's making bitter circumstances to eventually become sweet, although often we don't see it at the time. 
He's filtering temptations according to our ability to withstand them. He's leaving blessings before you like manna from heaven, and you will someday follow him in resurrection and glorification. And the leading doesn't even stop there. I love this verse, Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of water. The Lamb will be the good shepherd forever. He'll never change. All right, where else can we find the Lord Jesus Christ? Fourthly, we can find Him behind us when we wander. Now, lest we get the picture, Christ is way out ahead and faithful saints are close behind. Charles Spurgeon's there and Hudson Taylor and maybe John Wesley, even though he was an Arminian. But what about me? I mean, here they are forging ahead. And uh, if I stumble, I'm going to get trampled and forgotten and left behind for dead. You know, he's pictured not just ahead as a shepherd, but behind. 1 Corinthians 10.4, speaking of the Jews in the wilderness, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You can see him in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15 when he leaves the 90 and 9. And he follows after the wanderer. Oh, we can see this in the lives of God's saints, Old and New Testament. I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was done preaching, you know. I'm done. But what did he find? His word was within my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Oh, he came after him. Same with Elijah who has a hand-cooked meal prepared by the Son of God who appears as the angel of the Lord in the middle of his depression and actually cooks a meal and feeds it to him. Or Jonah running the other direction and God comes after him. Or John the Baptist, that greatest of the prophets, the Lord Jesus said, who when he gets shut up in prison, he sends messengers and asks, are you he that should come or do we look for another? And you look and go, man, John had a moment of weakness like that? And the Lord turns to the crowd and begins to tell them what a fine man John the Baptist was. And he sends them encouragement in his distress. Think of Peter after he denies the Lord. And the Lord looks at him. And then the Lord gathers him there to the shore of that sea and feeds him and gives Peter opportunity to deal with his sin. Or I think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, they're discouraged. They're just walking out of town. Jesus comes up next to them. They don't even recognize who He is. And oh, they're sad. <laughs> but here He comes. Psalm 23 again. You remember what David said there? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Goodness and mercy don't exist on their own. They're attributes of God. <laughs> In a sense, you could say, when I slow down, God's goodness and mercy are going to run me over with love. They're there. He's behind me when I wander. 
Where else is the Lord Jesus Christ? He can be found around us as a wall of protection. We know from many passages, He is our protection from future judgment. Just the statement, in Christ, carries that connotation. Of being given in His righteousness, being clothed in His character, our standing before Him. Salvation is pictured as fleeing from what? Fleeing from the wrath of God or the wrath of the Lamb. You know, there's really only two kinds of people. There's those who flee to the Lamb and those that flee from the Lamb. But everybody's fleeing somewhere. He is our atonement. He is our propitiation. What a great word that is. Our covering. What a picture in Noah's Ark. You know, so many of those point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and boy, does that one. Here's the world on the precipice of a worldwide judgment. And God gives man revelation to the one family that was actually willing to listen that the world's going to be wiped out and God was providing one way of salvation. And in that one way of salvation, there was one door, one way in. When it came time to enter that boat, the Lord didn't say go into the ark. He said come into the ark because He was there. And when they got in that ark, it was God Himself who shut the door and sealed it. And that ark was covered within and without with pitch, which uh, pitch is the same as the Hebrew word for atonement. Because not one drop of God's wrath was getting in that ark. If you're in Christ, you've gotten in the ark. Not one drip of God's wrath is going to get through. He's our protection from present enemies. In John 10, the Lord says that no man is able to pluck, that word means to forcefully seize them out of my hand. And the word man there is actually italicized. It was added in translation, but the idea is not just talking about human beings. He's saying nothing, no created being is able to forcefully seize my child out of my hand. Not the devil, not my enemies, not culture, not society, nothing. And that implies that some will try. You think if a devil could seize you back out, he would? You bet he would. It's not possible because if you're in Christ, your entire timeline's been purchased by His blood from embryo to the resurrection. Even in Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor, all of that is linked to the Word of God, but all of it's also linked to Christ. What is our protection? Loins girt about with truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Where'd that come from? It was imputed to you when you came to Christ. The helmet of salvation. Who gave you that? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God in embodiment. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Gospel of who? It's the gospel of Christ. So He's around us as a wall of protection. Where else can we find Christ? In fact, turn with me there to John 15. 
John 15, we'll just look at a couple of verses here. I'll just remind you chronologically as you're going through the Gospels, the emphasis, the selective emphasis is astounding. The Gospel of John, nearly half the book takes place in about a 48-hour period. And there's a huge emphasis given in this upper room discourse, far more than any of the other Gospel writers. In John 15, verse 13, the Lord is talking to His inner circle and He says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And maybe they're thinking, who's that? He says, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. In verse 16, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, does that mean we're not servants of Christ? No, it doesn't. That was one of Paul's favorite titles for himself. But it was much, much more than that. I wonder if these sharp Jewish minds, when they were there in that upper room, if they picked up, as they were uh, maybe cataloging the Old Testament, that only two men in all of written Scripture were ever called friends of God. It was Abraham and Moses. And now the Lord looks at them and says, you are my friends. John takes it even further in his first epistle. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What does that mean? The offspring of God. I hope you're in the Scriptures every day. Well, let me ask a searching question. When was the last time you met with the Lord for devotions? As father and friend. Not him standing over you with a stick. I mean, is this stale duty or is this banquet table? Is this merely list of thou shalt nots or is it a collection of letters from a loving father who wants koinonia fellowship with you? Do you realize that? God wants closeness with you if you're in Christ, you individually. He wants to walk right beside you. I don't mean to disparage modern terminology too much, but I'm not a fan of the word connect. I know, I know, people say it all the time, let's connect. I'm not saying don't say it. I'm just saying fellowship is a much better word because it reflects this closeness to fellows in a ship, you know? It's a precious word. All right, where else can we find Christ? 
He's not only above us reigning and beneath us sustaining and ahead of us leading and behind us when we wander and around us as a wall of protection and next to us as father and friend. And maybe this is the most astounding that he's indwelling us in intimate union. Yes, it's true, the Holy Spirit is thought of as the indweller among the Godhead. But yet that terminology is not just reserved for Him. Galatians 2.20, most of us know it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Ephesians 3.17, the prayer of Paul, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, he's not praying that Jesus would enter. He's praying you and I would actually believe and act like He has entered. Colossians 3.27 speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember Solomon's temple, and they bring, they finally spend years building it, and they bring the ark back. And the Shekinah glory cloud, that visible representation of God the Father, fills the place so that they had to back away. And the temple's dedicated, and Solomon makes a, gives a tremendous sermon and an astounding prayer. Oh, that by the way, God answered multiple times down the road. You can trace it back to that. But that Shekinah glory cloud appeared as fire so often. That was a picture the Jew understood. God appeared as fire. Then eventually, in the book of Ezekiel, you see him heading east, disappearing out of the city, withdrawing his intimate presence away because of their iniquity. You get the New Testament times, the Jews slaughter their Messiah. Eventually, their temple would be utterly reduced to rubble. The Lord had prophesied not one stone would be left upon another. And in perfect fulfillment of that, as the gold melted down between the rocks, they actually pried the brickwork apart to get the gold out from in between them, leaving not one stone upon another. But didn't an amazing thing happen that unique day at Pentecost when it was fully come, the fulfillment of that feast? And what did they see there? They hear the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. And then what appears? Cloven tongues as fire. Not one great manifestation, mind you, but individual flames settling upon each Christian person. And what was that representing? That God was now taking up residence, not in a stone temple, but in temples of flesh. That the very Shekinah glory cloud of God was now living in you and I as His living temples. The term Christian, I think we talked about it some last week. It's really sad what's happened to it. It's become very cheap. It's become very generic. Apparently, even the devil's a Christian nowadays. 
But I'll remind us again, that name was not given by the church deciding what to call itself. That name was given by their enemies who observed their life. They were saying not only are they like Christ, of Christ, with Christ, in Christ, Christ is in them. And we see it. John 17, 23, again in the upper room, the Lord prayed, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Did you catch that last statement? How much does God the Father love Christ? Well, words can't describe it. The Lord Jesus wants you to know that God the Father loves you as He loves Christ. It's astounding. I mean, what happens when you throw an empty bottle in the ocean? Well, you can say that the bottle's in the ocean. But what else happens? The ocean's in the bottle, right? Where can we find Christ? He's above us. He's beneath us. He's behind us. He's around us. He's walking with us. He's within us. I wonder, much of what I said this morning is some of these messages, it's like a Ford Christians only sign on top. Do you know Christ today? Again, it's not a matter of religion. I mean, if I ask you, how do you know your sins are forgiven? And your answer is, because I... Because you what? If the answer to that question is something you performed, something you earned, something you were born with, you are sorely mistaken. Nobody's born Christian. Nobody just falls into Christianity. Nobody gives their way into Christianity. Nobody earns their way into Christianity. Nobody performs their way into Christianity. You and I are depraved rebels. Truly with one fist waving in defiance at God and the other hand clinging our idols while we lean and run away from Him. And God condescends in mercy he became man to be slaughtered on a cross for your sake. God became man and He died and He took all the penalty for the wrath of hell that you deserve. And He now holds out a hand to you for a short time and He says, Whosoever will may come. And you and I have to turn our back on our effort to fix ourselves, On our own goodness we think we have. And we come to Him with nothing because He's everything and He's done everything. Can you say that this morning? If not, I'd love to speak with you. I'll not single you out, but I would love to show you from the Scriptures. And believe me, we'll take time. There's no hurry on this. But those of you that do know Christ, has He become distant? Or is He really God with you? Hmm? 
Do you have a, just a shallow servant-master relationship? Or is it koinonia, fellowship, walking with them? You can have it. Uh, Revelation 3, to the church at Laodicea. Oh, the Lord rebuked them terribly, didn't He? I will spew thee out of my mouth, he said. Revelation 3.20 is not evangelistic. It's often used that way, but it's speaking to Christians. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. If you're a believer, it doesn't matter where you're at. You can deal with sin, you can get up, and you can step forward and walk with God from right where you are. He's not so much interested in where you're at as where you're heading. Hmm? You can be close to Him today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your blessed Son. Father, there, there, there's so much we have to learn about Him. And I thank You that we have all eternity to do so. But Lord, we want to learn more now. Help us not just to know Your Word, but to really understand it. I pray You'd minister to our hearts and open to us the bread of life and show us the Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our Friend, we thank you, Lord, for all of those things that God with us means. Help us to help us to live like it, even in these dark times. In Jesus' name, amen.